The sermon that I will be reading this afternoon was prepared by Reverend Rodney Verbillen of the Canadian Reformed Church at Glanbrook, Ontario. And as I read through it, you will realize that obviously it was first preached at the end of a calendar year, namely December 28, 2014. And the text for the sermon is from the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 42, which deals with the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. Lord's Day 42. What does God forbid in the Eighth Commandment? God forbids not only outright theft and robbery, but also such wicked schemes and devices as false weights and measures, deceptive merchandising, counterfeit money, and usury. We must not defraud our neighbor in any way, whether by force or by show of right. In addition, God forbids all greed and all abuse or squandering of his gifts. What does God require of you in this commandment? I must promote my neighbor's good wherever I can and may, deal with him as I would like others to deal with me, and work faithfully so that I may be able to give to those in need so far. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, maybe it's not only horses which do this. Maybe other grazing animals do it as well. But I've certainly seen horses do it. They may have a huge grazing area with a nice neat fence all around it, but if they get half a chance, they shove their necks somehow through the fence to get that little bit of grass on the other side. They have the whole field. They want that little bit on the outside. You know the saying, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. And we sort of chuckle at that. But the thing is, we can be pretty horse-like at times. When someone else, someone else has, what they have always seems to be greener. It started like that for each of us when we were young. Our parents didn't have to teach us to steal. Dad didn't have to pull you aside as a two-year-old and say, now listen, Johnny, we're going over to your cousin Phil's house, and his Lego is much nicer than yours. Especially that Lego toy truck, a tow truck of his, is much fancier than yours. And if you want to have it, when he is playing with it, this is what you need to do. You need to go over to where he is playing and just launch yourself in there. That's nonsense. Not one of us had to be taught to look at other people's stuff and learn to covet. None of us had to have a lesson in stealing either. It comes natural to us. And that's particularly true when you consider the breadth of this commandment as described here in this Lord's Day. Our right, outright theft and robbery, we might be able to resist that most of the time. But the desire to have something that isn't ours is much more difficult to suppress. We might be able to resist the temptation to adjust a few numbers on our tax forms, but the desire often isn't too far off. We might be able to give the appearance that we are not greedy. But to not compare our helping of our favorite dish at supper to those of everybody else's 
is not so easy to do. And then we've not yet talked about what God requires in this commandment. To not steal isn't just not taking my neighbor's stuff. It is instead to promote his good wherever I can and may. Promoting our own good, we tend to know how to do that. But to promote my neighbor's good isn't something we always think about. And that line about working faithfully so that I may be able to give to those in need, we tend to work faithfully so that we can supply our needs by the things we want. Our first thought isn't always working so that I can supply the needs of others. So how then, brothers and sisters, does the thankful child of God keep from sticking his head through the fence to try and take what God has not given? It begins by understanding and accepting in faith that everything, absolutely everything, belongs to our God. I bring you God's word this afternoon as it is summarized in Lord's Day 42 using this theme. The Eighth Commandment teaches the thankful child of God that everything belongs to God. We will carefully consider what the one who owns everything, first of all, what he forbids with this commandment, and in the second place, requires with this commandment. The first point, what God forbids with this commandment. You might, or you might not remember, that the Eighth Commandment is our home visit theme for the year. You will know, though, that today is the last Sunday of the year. And a pretty standard thing to say at this time of the year is, where has the time gone? And when we launched the home visit theme with a sermon on Ephesians 5, 15 to 17, back in September, we considered, among other things, our use of the time that our God has given to us. Time is also one of his gifts. So it is good at this time of the year, as the year is drawing to a close, to ask ourselves by way of self-evaluation, how well have I used my time this past year? But, as we know, the Eighth Commandment is more than just about time. We saw that, too, at the beginning of the home visit season. And it is also good, then, to ask ourselves at this point of a new, of a new year, how have I done in relation to all God's gifts to me? Have I used them well? To make the question even more pointed, God has given me exactly what he has deemed necessary for me to do the tasks he has assigned to me. He has given me my time, my possessions, my talents. But the question is, have I used all of those gifts as best as I was able in order to fulfill my God-given tasks? Or have I been content with God's provision in my life? Or am I like the horse, constantly sticking my head through the fence looking for more, even as I seek to do God's will in my life? Because we need to know that God very purposefully and deliberately gives us our particular gifts, time, and possessions so that we can do the task he assigns to us. We know that from the first book of the Bible. In Genesis 1:28, God assigns a task for Adam and Eve to do. Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 
But then God also gives man what he needs in order to be able to fulfill his task. Verse 29 says, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Man is given sustenance so that he can carry out his God-given role. The point, the point is that God created you to fulfill your God-given role in life. And in order to do that task, God gives you what you need. This order of things is so radically different from the world's adopted order. The world says we work so that we can eat and enjoy the things of this life. The Christian says we are given the things we need so that we can work and fulfill the task that God gives us and also enjoy the life he has given us. The Christian's approach, the biblical approach, understands that what in this life I call mine isn't really mine at all. It belongs to him who has given it to me to use for the express purpose of fulfilling the tasks he has given to me. That means, by clear implication, that I must be content with what my God has provided for me. It all begins, brothers and sisters, and young people included, it all begins by clearly acknowledging that all, including the stuff that I call mine, belongs to him. We have to get that clear in our hearts and in our minds. It all belongs to the Lord. This is clear in the Psalms. To pick one, Psalm 24, 1-2, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. There it is, plain and simple. That means that the things that I call mine, my spare time, my bank account, my iPad, my home, my car and business, all of those things actually belong to my God. Yes, we have PIN numbers and passwords. We have deadbolt locks and organizers to protect our stuff and our time because it's precious. But God stands above all of that and says, it's mine, it's mine. That truth is what the people of Israel had to understand as well. They were delivered from slavery in Egypt where they had essentially nothing. But remember that as they stood at the foot of Mount Sinai, they were anything but poor. Remember what happened when they left Egypt? Exodus 12. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. They stood at the foot of Mount Sinai with their pockets stuffed full of loot from Egypt. They had it dangling from their ears. They had it stored in their tents and in their packs. And standing there at the foot of Mount Sinai, the people of Israel heard these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I did it, says the Lord. I made those Egyptians favorably disposed toward you. That beautiful necklace that that Egyptian woman in desperation thrust into your hands saying, get out, go away. That necklace isn't yours, it's mine. 
And what that Egyptian man gave you isn't yours either. It is mine, says the Lord. And in that context, God says, you shall not steal. That's because what you have been given is what God has specifically provided for you so that you can fulfill the task he has assigned you. And that means that God gives to the one more than he gives to the other. We perhaps say in jealousy, how come they seem to get it all? But the point is that God gives to the one this much and to the other that much so that each might use it to fulfill his task on earth. You understand, I think that stealing then is a sin on two fronts. To stick your head through the fence and take another stuff is to say, Lord, thank you for your providential care, but actually I think, God, that you shortchanged me a bit, so I have had to take some from my neighbor. But at the same time, stealing is to take away from my neighbor so that he no longer has what he has been given by God to fulfill his tasks. For the Israelite to take from the neighbor's tent was to deprive that neighbor of what God had providentially provided for him to be able to do the task to which he was called. The terrible nature of stealing is made clear in the story of Ahab and Naboth. We read it. And given that we've said so far, you can guess what is coming. Ahab stuck his head out of his palace door and saw the greener-looking vineyard of his neighbor Naboth. Ahab was not content with what God had provided for him to do his God-given task as king. There is the one aspect of stealing, discontent with God's provision. He approaches Naboth looking to do a deal. But Naboth is clear. I can't do a deal. Verse 3 says, Naboth, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. In other words, God has given me this land so that I can do my task here on earth. Sorry, Ahab, no deal. I can't give it to you. Ahab takes it in any way, rendering very literally Naboth unable to do his God-given task. He kills him. There is the other aspect of stealing. What was taken from Naboth makes it more difficult for him to fulfill his task on earth. And that would have been true even if Ahab hadn't killed him. God had given Naboth that vineyard so that he could use it for God's glory. We need to understand what I call mine isn't mine. It is what God has given me to use in his service. And I am to keep my hands off my neighbor's things because he has been given them for use in his service of God. It's not right for me to keep sticking my head through the fence and wanting or taking what God has given to others. It's true for me, and so I expect that it is true for many or most of us. We realize that this past year we've fallen short in this area of our life. And that makes it so encouraging to think about our Savior and how he went to the cross. He went as one who had been stripped entirely of everything he had. The soldiers had stolen everything they could from him. Matthew 27 tells us that a whole company of soldiers gathered around Jesus. 
They made fun of Jesus. He was treated like dirt. They spit on him. They took a staff and struck him on the head again and again. Jesus went to the cross with nothing. Even his dignity had been stolen from him. And he did it for us. That had to happen to him because people like you and I are thieves. In the end, they even cast lots to see who would get his cloths. But there is more to what our Savior went through. You see, Matthew 27, 38 tells us that then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. On the two crosses on either side of Jesus hung two thieves. But as far as God's justice was concerned, there were three crosses, and on all three hung thieves. Says Isaiah 53, 12, our Savior was numbered with the transgressors. The two on either side hung there for their own thieving ways. The third, the one in the middle, our Lord and Savior, he hung there for someone else's thieving ways, yours and mine. It all means, and praise God for this, thieves like you and I have the comfort of knowing that on the day that Christ died on the cross, a thief who repented went to heaven. One of those thieves hanging next to Jesus said to him, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus' beautifully comforting response is recorded in Luke 23. I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. That means that for thieves like you and I, salvation is a reality. Given that wonderful truth, I need to ask then, what is it that my God, who owns everything that I call mine, wants me to do with my stuff? And that is our second point, what God requires with this commandment. The basic thrust of answer 111 is this. The eighth requirement requires, sorry, the eighth commandment requires that I use the gifts that God has given me as God would use them. Do I do that? That is the question that ought to be on our hearts as we consider the things with which God has blessed us, also as we look forward to fulfilling our God-given tasks in a new year. The passage that we read from 2 Corinthians helps us a great deal as we try to understand this approach to our money, our time, our talents, and how we are to use all these things to fulfill our task here on earth. What is more, brothers and sisters, understanding this by grace and by the working of the Holy Spirit will do wonders in terms of combating our desire to see the grass on the other side of the fence as greener. Let's briefly paint the picture here in 2 Corinthians. Because of severe persecution, the church at Jerusalem was in need. In his letter to them, Paul is seeking to motivate the Corinthians to help out to give. He begins chapter 8 by holding up the churches of Macedonia as an example. Those churches, says, Paul, says verse 2, had, suffered, uh, had suffering of their own. And yet, verse 2, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. 
Amazing stuff, verse 3. What a testimony. They gave according to their means and beyond their means. And then verse 4, they were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. It was a privilege to them to be able to give. And Paul urges the Corinthian Christians to adopt the same attitude towards giving. Verse 7, But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also, the grace of giving. And then Paul goes on to give the reason why this motivation should well up in them. Verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. There you have it. Christ gave up all, became poor, was robbed of everything, so that in him we might be rich. It's true. In the first place, that is a reference to the riches we have in that we are, through Christ, reconciled to God. But God's blessings over us go way beyond that. He blesses us in incredible ways. We just don't recognize it enough because we are so used to being blessed by God. Most of us here, probably all of us, are blessed way beyond what we need in terms of money, possessions, time, and talents. These are all God's abundant blessings which we are privileged to enjoy. But we are to enjoy them always remembering he has given it all to me to use in my service of him. And a big part of that is to use the things I have been blessed with for the benefit of others. <coughs> Brothers and sisters, realizing what we have in Christ, we want to do that, don't we? See, even if all our earthly possessions were taken from us, we would still be rich. We have Christ. We have his Holy Spirit. If I realize how rich I am with just those two blessings, then there is a willingness in my heart to use all the other blessings that I have been given in God's service too. If that willingness is in my heart, says verse 12, then it is acceptable. Then we give in measure with what we have been given. Verse 12 says that as well. But then we want to ask, how much do I give? But really, that is the wrong question. It is so often motivated by this thought, how little can I give? and still be giving enough. Think about how wrong that is. That's like the horse sticking his head through the fence while at the same time keeping one eye on his own field, making sure that no neighboring horses are stealing his grass. We can be like that. I like to have other people's stuff, but I really want to hold on to all of my own as well. And when we're thinking like that, we are most certainly not thinking about giving to others. So what does God honoring giving look like? Paul addresses that in chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians. The point is this. 
Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And verse 10 and 11, he, that's God, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for all your generosity, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Paul is telling the Corinthians, and the Holy Spirit is telling us, that if we give generously, then we are not to worry about our future needs. Generous givers are under the care of God, who will supply their needs as he sees fit. He will also ensure that there is sufficient grass in our own field to do the task he has given you. What is more, as generous givers continue to give, God will increase their ability to give. Such will be the abundant growth of grass in your own field that you'll have more than sufficient to throw some over the fence to others less fortunate than you are. The book of Proverbs tells us this, chapter 3. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. That's the general rule. Brothers and sisters, let me put this direct question before you and before myself. When is the last time your financial advisor, if you haven't got one, imagine for a moment that you do, when is the last time your financial advisor has said to you, I'm not sure that you can sustain your level of giving, you are being too generous. I don't imagine there are too many financial advisors who have had to use that line. Are we stealing from God by hoarding his blessings for ourselves rather than using them in God's service? Realizing what we have in Christ, recognizing how richly we have been blessed, we don't want to do that. Rather, we want to do what this commandment requires, that is, to use our gifts as God would have us use them. And that explains why answer 111 starts the way it does. I must promote my neighbor's good wherever I can and may. When speaking about what this commandment requires, the Catechism doesn't speak, first of all, about my neighbor's goods, but rather about his good. It is not his goods that are in focus, it is his good. In generous thankfulness for what I have been given, I am to use the blessings with which God has blessed me for the good of those around me. This is about gleaning from your own field to give to others. The Catechism provides the standard to which we are to promote our neighbor's good. It says, deal with him as I would like others to deal with me. That is a no-brainer, isn't it? We know instinctively how we would like to be treated. Well, says God, it is simple. What I require of you in this commandment is that you treat others that way. Or to think of it like Paul does here in 2 Corinthians, treat others the way God has treated you. 
Answer 111 goes on, and work faithfully, so that I may be able to give to those in need. We have already been taught by Paul's second letter to the Corinthians what that looks like, but it is worth also quoting one of the proof texts listed under this answer. Ephesians 4.28, he who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. This is so radically different from the world around us, but for us, for us redeemed by Christ, for us thankful Christians, this becomes the norm. I work to care for those God has placed under my care. I work to be able to promote my neighbor's good. I work so that I can thankfully, willingly, generously support those in need. Then I am no longer to stick my neck through the fence because the grass is greener on the other side. Instead, I am looking over the fence to see whose grass is not so green, who looks underfed, who needs some of my time, some of my gifts some of my money, and I lovingly, willingly take what my God has blessed me with and throw it over my fence into someone else's field. After all, all the things that I call mine are God's, and it is his will that I share them. Amen. Amen.